This is Deep in Japan, and I'm your host, Jeff Kruger. Today's guest is the ever optimistic, energetic, and charismatic writer and columnist, Amy Chavez. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Amy back in October of 2017. It was a riveting discussion. We talked about a million things under the sun, including her recently deceased longtime friend, the American author, journalist, and adventurer, Boye Lafayette Demente. Who wrote such books as Japan Unmasked and Kata, the key to understanding and dealing with the Japanese? Unfortunately, just as we were wrapping up the interview, it was discovered that the tape hadn't been rolling on her end. I blame myself for this. I had sent her my Zoom H4N recorder with the intent of doing a double ender and hadn't properly explained how to use the device. And so our first recording was lost. Undaunted though, Amy suggested we hit play and start over again, right then and there. I was amazed by this. It was already approaching 11 p.m., and we had been talking for over two hours, and she sounded as though she was just warming up. That's the kind of energy she has. Not wanting to subject her to another two hours with me, though, I suggested we reconvene and re record the following day. As is often the case when such things happen, we ended up having a completely different discussion the second time around. And although we didn't touch on Voye Lafayette Demente this time, it was just as fascinating. For those of you who are interested, I've included a link to the article she wrote in the Japan Times as a tribute to Demente, along with links to her many projects, including books on Asia, Amy in Asia, Writers in Kyoto, and her most recent book, Amy's Guide to Best Behavior in Japan. Without further ado, I present to you Amy Chavez. Hey there. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you today? Good, good, good. I'm up and running. Sorry I was a little bit late to get back to, the, to my station here.、Uh, are you,、uh, you recording? Are we good? I am、end? recording right now. And let me make sure yes, I'm already 130 or 1 minute and 39 seconds into the podcast. <laughs> Hello, this is the Amy Chavez podcast. And today we're interviewing Jeff Kruger. <laughs> Yay! I'm not prepared. Oh my God. <laughs>、uh, yeah, sorry for,、uh, sorry for keeping you waiting there. I, I had no, no.、Uh, three I, kids. I wasn't waiting at all. How are you? How, are the kids all off to. Well, I guess it's not school, is it?、But. Right.、Um, they are headed off to the Jidokan with their、oh. moms. They're、yeah. going to hang out there for a couple hours. And then、uh, when they get back, I think I'm going to change the tires to snow tires because、Ooh. that's where we're at now. Wow, that is so cool. Has it snowed yet? It has snowed once, even down in the valley, but、um, nothing that can't be dealt with.、Yeah. There is scheduled snow on, on Friday of this week, though, so、oh, I'm a little bit、so、worried about that. I'm so envious. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Only somebody who doesn't live in the mountains could say that. Oh, no, but I、shoveling. have lived in the mountains.、Um, actually, I really, lived you, in Hokkaido. Did you have to shovel? Because here it's like religious. Yeah. That's right. You shovel yourself out of your house, and then when you come home, you shovel yourself into your house. You don't do the streets or anything like that? Because here it's like the etiquette is that you have to be out, and you, you not only do 
the entrance to your house and stuff like that and maybe like around your property and whatnot but out on the street the area in front of your house that um basically that your property covers you're supposed to you're responsible for shoveling the streets as well really so they don't have snow plows they do. We, uh, yeah. The, I mean, there are, uh, but they go to the main streets first, like the highways. Sure. And then in the neighborhoods, if possible, if if they're wide enough, maybe later there'll be plows in there. But for the most part, wow. it's people, individuals from the community going out. And if you if you don't, you really feel like an ass because everybody's out there shoveling right. uh, the streets. And yeah, out. it's all clean except for right in front of your house, right? So you look like an asshole too. Sure. So I always make sure to get out there and do that. So yeah. Well, one of the things I noticed in Hokkaido was that the the snow was so light, so it wasn't anything mm. like you know shoveling snow in the states. It was actually quite a lot easier, put it that way. Fluffy and yeah, yeah. nice. What is it like in Gu- Gunma? Is that where you are? Nagano, uh, close, very close, but oh, okay. it, it it depends. It just depends on yeah. It can be slushy and heavy, or it can be fluffy and. Um, it, it really depends. A few years ago, we had that big storm, you know, and there was like a suddenly we had a meter of snow. We don't usually get a meter of snow out here, and it, it caused oh, a lot that's of damage. Amazing. Oh, I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It was good for skiing, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, how's it going? Are you you're about to head out, right? You're about to go traveling or something like that. Yes, um, I'm not very good with winter in Japan, at least on the island. If I were in the mountains, I'd be really happy. <laughs> but on the uh-huh. island, it gets really windy in the winter time, so yeah. it's just really cold. And yeah, it hovers around that freezing point, so it rains a lot, but it never turns to snow. So it's basically just cold wind and rain, and there's nothing to do. Ah, so are you? Do you just do you winter over in another place, or do you? Bear down and you know deal with it, or what do you do? You oh know? no, we go traveling. Nice. So where are you going this? Year? Are you all over the place, or is there like one destination that you guys have in mind? Well, this is all off the record. I don't like to tell people. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, all right. With all the GPS and this and that these days and Facebook, I'm like, you know, I don't want people to know where I am. <laughs> I can understand that. I don't actually live in Nagano. That's just what I tell people. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I live in Nagano. But I can understand exactly what you mean. So yeah, so I, that sure. way I can maintain some privacy. Um, yeah. Plus, the other thing is, as soon as you tell people where you're going, then people are like, oh, they you flock know, to see you, right? Or you know, come to my place or do this or that. And um, yeah, if it, yeah, it's fun. yeah. Well, I mean, is it? It's warm. It's a warm place. I take it. Very That's, warm place. Right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And no, we will you, go skiing. Okay. Uh, we'll change locations and go skiing because skiing is one of our favorite things to do. And um, it's my I come from a skiing family, and my mm-hmm. parents actually met on a chairlift. So um, we try to continue the tradition of skiing for a month every year. So are you from Canada then? or where I'm you- not. I'm <clears throat> actually from Ohio, okay. which is right in the middle of nowhere, and it's pretty Wait, flat. is there skiing in Ohio, or did you guys get around travel (laughs) we just traveled a lot yeah um actually my my father owned a backyard ski area wow so i grew up skiing literally and um since since i was three years old and so um but then of course after the season our season was over which was you know pretty much into the beginning of march we would then go out west uh and ski in the rockies for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we got a lot of both. 
And as they say in the States, is that if you can ski the eastern ice, you can ski anything. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you ever have any uh, meniscal problems? Because I know that like Olympic skiers have an average of like seven meniscus operations in the course <laughs> of their career. <laughs> yeah, I have lots of knee problems, but actually I was really lucky because what I did was freestyle skiing. So oh, okay. uh, the moguls and... Uh-huh. Uh, most of my friends have had uh, knee reconstruction, and I haven't. And I probably should, but I just feel that I should get along as naturally as possible. And I like to run long distances as well. And I that's can't another really... thing that's really hard on the knees, apparently, right? That's so. right. Yeah. So uh, one way I adjusted was to do trail running rather than you know running mm-hmm. like uh, marathons and stuff are always on the pavement. So I cannot yeah. run on the pavement at all, but that's fine. It gets, you know, once you're into trails and you really don't go back because you realize how much nicer it is because you're out with nature and it's quiet and you're on, you know, really soft ground. And, and even then yeah. I can't run the distances I used to be able to, but I can certainly, you know, run enough to make me happy. And yeah. What kind of distances are we talking? Are you like, an, were you an ultra marathoner or what, what did you do? <laughs> um, Unfortunately, I like ultra marathons came around later in life, but um, I guess what I'm known most for is running the Shikoku pilgrimage, which was one 1,350 uh, kilometers or 900 miles. And that was the book that you wrote, right? Run, that, uh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. What's the title? Running? Running the Shikoku pilgrimage, 900 miles to enlightenment. Wow. Yeah. And 900 I know, miles. Just, I just always like to run long distances, but now I really can't. So, um, but I can run the trails. So that's yeah, fine. I'm happy. But you're and taking I, breaks to have ramen and pray, right? <laughs> so it wasn't like a flat out 900. Right? Of, <laughs> of course, yeah. No, it was over five weeks. So and that's 88 temples, or how? Uh, mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, is that is that about right? Because that's like a special number temples. in Buddhism, right? It is. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, but actually, I've run lots of pilgrimages in Japan. That's not the only one. Um, I've run the Kumano Kodo pilgrimage. I've run um, the uh, Kaihogyo, um, which is what the the Tendai priests do in Kyoto. Except that ah. it's a sixty-kilometer route, but they would do that for a thousand days. And um, I didn't do it a thousand days. I only did it one. But <laughs> who has a thousand days, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, they spend that. Yeah, a greater part of their life, you know, doing it. It's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. And, and like, they're not even running, right? It's kind of like cheating, right? No, they're right? not. I mean, <laughs> well, no, it's... See, this is the thing people okay. don't realize about ultra running, though, is that you're not running the whole time. You uh-huh. are walking parts. Because when you start running up a big hill, there's no point wasting your energy, you know, uh, running up it. So you might walk up uh, that hill mm-hmm. or parts of it anyway. And then once you get to the top, then you start running because, you know, you do use up your energy. So the whole idea is to conserve your energy and use it as efficiently as possible. So yeah, in I've these hundred mile runs a... and such, yeah, people aren't running mm-hmm. the whole time. There's been a lot of that on TV in Japan recently. My father-in-law, I'll, I'll pop in on him. He's usually plopped down in front of the TV and he's he's watching these uh, ultra marathons. So it's becoming more popular on Japanese TV recently. I've noticed. Yeah, well, they had, um, of course, the uh, the. The USB, uh, is it, hang on, uh, 
<laughs> okay. Check your Googles. Ult- Check. <laughs> no, no. Ultra, ultra marathon Mount Fuji. Uh, they had oh, for, okay. they held for the first time a few years ago, and uh, that's 100 miles around the base of Mount Fuji. It's a really wow. really vicious course, but um, so it's probably started to take off since then. And also, of course, the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. Um, mm. UTMB has always been big and they've always uh, had that on TV in Japan mm-hmm. and it's a great one to watch as well as so, well as the Ekiden as well Japanese people like running and then you got Takahashi Naoko who didn't she win a gold I'm not super yeah, up on this I stuff so, but yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty big here for sure yeah running's huge and uh, trail running is now kind of a boom as well and uh, I hold a trail race every year on Shiraishi Island, actually. It's called the uh, Run with Kobodaishi 10K Trail Race. And we do it to raise money to keep our mini Shikoku pilgrimage uh, maintained. So uh, Western Japan, a lot of people don't realize this, but Western Japan has a lot of these mini pilgrimages that are based on the big Shikoku 88 and they range anywhere from like one kilometer to like ours is 10. They could be, you know, much longer. Shodoshima is probably the best known. And that takes 10 days to walk around the whole thing. And so what, what happened is uh, that they started these pilgrimages about 400 years ago so that people could still do the pilgrimage without having to make it all the way down to Shikoku. Because you figure in these areas like Okayama, where I live, just to get to Shikoku, you would have had to walk walk there. So that yeah. itself would have taken days. So uh, this enabled people to still do their, uh, their religious duties. Um, and they would walk it at Ohigan, uh, the solstices. And they would walk it uh, after the death of a family member to help them uh, get to heaven or the mm. Buddhist paradise, and things like that. So it made it available then to the average person. So ours um, actually fell into disrepair about five years ago. And because people were actually still uh, doing the pilgrimage when I moved here 20 years ago. and But then, of course, as uh, time went on, there were fewer and fewer people. And mm-hmm. then about five years ago, they decided to just stop trying to maintain it and then that's when I started up, up getting volunteers and friends to come out and clean the trails and keep uh, it alive and now uh, in uh, 2018 in May, May 6th, we'll have the third Run with Kobodaishi trail race. Nice. So you, you basically revitalized Amy Chavez, cultural <laughs> yep. revolutionary or renaissance woman. You revitalized <laughs> Uh, sort of a, a dying aspect of Japanese local culture there. That is amazing. Pretty much single-handedly, too, because it, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of convincing the local people that it, this is something they should do. And so it's the type of thing where you go and you do something and you basically embarrass them into doing it themselves because then they realize, oh, my gosh, a foreigner is doing this and we really should be doing it ourselves. And so then after the first race was really successful, Uh, Then people were like, oh, maybe we should start helping Amy. And so, yeah, now we're getting, now it's all local people. We're used to, the first one was all run by entirely people off the island except for myself. So now 
the local people uh, and myself were running it. So it's a much better deal now because people, you know, once they invest themselves, then they care. You and uh, what's it? Five hundred. The quote is five hundred and sixty-three other crazy people. On your- <laughs> Actually, that um, that is old. I should change it. It's now five hundred and three people, crazy wow. people. Mm-hmm. Who, who's the youngest and who's the oldest? I, I suppose you're looking at an infant on one end, and then you, a lot of, you have a lot of centenarians over there. Oh, we do. Or well, we used to. I'm not sure who, uh, how old the oldest person is now. Certainly, you know, 96 or seven, probably. But we certainly have had people over a hundred. Yeah. And they're so very when healthy. it gets down to 500, they're very healthy. I'm sure they live on a beautiful island. How could they not be? <laughs> well, and they they yeah, and they have gardens and they maintain them and they go out every day and work in their gardens and come back and that keeps them healthy. They're not just sitting around watching TV and drinking Budweiser. Exactly. And, you know, where I live, um, <clears throat> close to the Saku City area in Nagano Prefecture, we surpassed Okinawa for the longest life expectancy in the world. So we're currently wow. the reigning champs on that. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I, I can't take any credit personally. I didn't revitalize any trails or anything. But but uh, I'm sure it's exactly what, like what you said, because we have gardens and people go outside and they work in the gardens. Um, just that exercise, getting in nature... Growing your own vegetables, um, organic when possible, I'm sure all that has a huge effect on life expectancy. Absolutely. So um, let's talk business. Um, That was a a long intro that didn't actually introduce you. I'm sure that many people out there already know who you are and all have introduced you after the show's begun. But um, could you give us a little background about yourself? I mean, you said you come from Ohio. But is there anything else we should know about about Amy Chavez that maybe we haven't read in the publications yet? Or do you have a, a pat introduction that you like to use when you introduce yourself to people? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you totally caught me offhand because usually people introduce me and then I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I can well, do I can that do for the you. I can do the Shokai. Well, on Sora News 24, which you actually don't write for anymore, you used to write for them, they've still got your bio up there, and it says, Amy Chavez lives on Shiraishijima, a small island in Japan's Seto Island Sea, with 563 other crazy people, but that's, as you just corrected, actually 503, right? Yeah, actually, you should probably, you should probably do that over again, because you said Seto Island Sea, it's actually Seto Inland Sea. Oh my goodness Gracious. I can't read. Let me try that again. Amy Chavez lives on Shiraishijima, a small island in Japan's Seto Inland Sea, with 503 other crazy people. She also writes for the Japan Times, blogs for Huffington Post, and has authored two books, Japan, Funny Sai and Running the Shikoku Pilgrimage, 900 Miles to Enlightenment. She loves running really long distances, skiing super steep mountains, and sailing the calm waters of the Seto Inland Sea. Her motto in life is surround yourself with beauty and peace. That's such a great intro. And I feel like the last line, surround yourself with beauty and peace, I I think it must sum up your character because everything you write tends to come from a place of, uh, I want to say, like relaxed peace. Are you a Buddhist? I mean, you do all these pilgrimages and stuff. Where do you get this inner peace from? Um, I think I learned it. Um, I think just having key figures in your life who... um, who can act as role models 
and uh, to just be really uh, based yourself. Um, and then, of course, I, I mean, I'm not Buddhist, but of course, living in Japan, you have these Buddhist influences all around you. So it's kind of like saying, well, I'm from America, but I'm not Christian. Even if you say you're not Christian, you've got all these Christian influences that you've grown up with your whole life. And mm -hmm. so I think just having things around like that, and one of my best friends is actually the Buddhist priest on our island. He's uh, 84, and he's just absolutely one of my favorite people. And uh, so I think if you have really good key people in your life, that that really helps. And it's not necessarily something that's taught overtly, but it's internalized by being around these people and your just subconscious observations even. That's actually a Buddhist <clears throat> precept, if I'm not mistaken, right relations. So keeping positive influences around you, good people around you, and, that, and they help, you know, guide you along. So oh, <laughs> even if you're not a Buddhist, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's yeah elements of Buddhism have affected you from living here and, and doing so many pilgrimages and things like that. They, I'm sure they've had a, a big impact on who you are. But that's actually one of my questions today. Um, how do you think you would be different if you hadn't spent the last 20 years in Japan? Would you be a different person, do you think? Probably. Um, as uh, many of us who have lived in Japan a long time know, sometimes it's really hard to tell how much of the maturing process we all go through is comes from ourselves just maturing and how much of it is uh, Japan-influenced. So uh, I do think that I would be a different person if I had stayed in the U.S. And I think that I'm, I'm more comfortable with the person I am now. I do know that when I go back to the U.S., a lot of people spend a lot of time complaining. And this is before Trump was ever president, so <laughs> we can't really blame that one on him. So we know it's legitimate. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but... Um, and I think, uh, I get, but there are good people, of course, in America, too, and certainly one of the people that I uh, admired, and I, ne I never told her so, but when I was around her, I was like, gosh, how does she always seem to be able to deal with everything? And so I started just noticing how she dealt with things, I, and I just decided I'm going to be that way. And from then on, I just uh, didn't get upset about things as much, and I just tried to be really laid back. And uh, another friend of mine, his name is Arun, and he's uh, from India. And we went to school together in Ohio. And he, he told me, because he was going through a divorce, and he said once, you know, what helped me through, he said, is that I just thought, look, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? Mm -hmm. And if you look at it from that perspective, you know, he said, well, I'm going to be lonely. I might have a lot less money. I might even be on the street or something. But if that's the worst thing that's going to happen to you, it's not all that bad. And then once you know, have imagined the worst thing that can happen, then you also have something to judge yourself against. And to uh, you know, just be able to have that vision will help you get out of it and make sure you don't, that doesn't happen to you. So an amazing uh, mindset. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why I like reading your articles is because I feel like a little injection of the Amy Chavez mindset it makes me feel better. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> I, I like that wavelength and I want to get on that wavelength. So, I mean, content is great too, but a lot of times I just want to 
you know, feel that vibe, so to speak. That's why I really love reading your articles. Thank you. That's very nice of you. Well, um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about your daily life. Maybe that's, I mean, it's private. Maybe it's something you don't want to talk about it. But um, what's, what is a day in the life of Amy Chavez like? What do you, what do you do? How do you fill your days? Well, I mostly write, and I have to admit that I absolutely love writing. So um, there's nothing, you know, that I could be do do that I'd rather be doing. So I stay home and I write, and then I get interrupted, and then <laughs> <laughs> I have to go do things because <laughs> this is a community, a small community, and of course, if you're at home, people presume you're not working. So I do get called on to you know, do all the community things that everyone else has to do, but they wouldn't have to do them if they were actually going to an office because everyone would realize that they're busy sure. working. So, but that's okay. Um, when I first moved to the island, I was still working at university and I was com commuting every day off the island. And I got to participate in a lot of the traditional events and stuff here on the weekends, but I had no idea what happened during the week. And since I wasn't here, I just presumed nothing was happening. But once I decided to uh, stop teaching at university and write full time, then I was here, of course, you know, all the time. And I realized that there are all these like traditional festivals and events that are going on constantly. <laughs> so it was really fun because then I actually started to get to know the island people and participating in these things. And you have to realize that Shiraishi is uh, it's very traditional. And almost every month they've got some you know small festival going on somewhere. Uh, a lot of them are Shinto festivals. They're, they're to, like we have the mountain god ceremony behind our house, right behind our house, twice a year. And that's where they worship the mountain god. And then they have, um, you know, at all of the different places on the island actually have their own ceremony. But these things are all done by the island people themselves who believe in this. So it's, they're not ceremonies that are done for tourists. Um, even our fall festival, carrying the Mikoshi, all of this is done for ourselves. So it's quite a special thing. And when people come out to visit, they can see these festivals that have never been influenced by any kind of tourism, not even Japanese tourism. So it's quite special, but they're not going to last forever. And probably another 20 years, a lot of these uh, festivals will be extinct because the people who are keeping them going will also be gone. You know, you mentioned um, that the population has uh, dwindled down to 503. What was it when you arrived first? When I arrived, which was 97, it, the population was 900 and something, 940. So it's almost halved in that time. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then with, you know, the declining birth rate and maybe the sort of um, people flood, flood the cities, the brain daring from the countryside. What's the prognosis? What, what are people in the town saying about this? Well, it's not good, the prognosis. And... Um, they're saying now that in another three years, the school will probably close because we do have a school that goes from kindergarten through junior high. And right now we have three junior high school students. Damn. And for high school, they'll go off the island. So 
once there are no longer any children for the school, they'll close it down. And of course, at that point, the community itself doesn't really have any hope for survival because if you can't uh, have allow anyone to move here who has a family, then you know it's it's no longer attractive for anyone. I just had an idea. You revitalized all the trails already. You've got that down. Maybe it's time to open Amy's International School. Ah, uh, <laughs> what a nice <laughs> idea. <laughs> I could outsource it, maybe, you know? <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> like the, the American you're just School the, in Japan or something. <laughs> yeah, so you would be the, the, the principal, right? So you really wouldn't have to do anything. You could sit in your office. Nobody's going to come pester you during the daytime, so you can work writing, of course, uh, in your office. Well, you know, people will come to you and ask you for this and that, but then just let the teachers take care of it. Yeah. Amy's International School, revi- revitalizing the island through education. Hey, I like, I like the idea. It's so great, really. Um, we've certainly thought thought of different things, but just between my husband and I, the the greater island, I'm not sure that they're so um, upset about what's happening, to tell you the truth. We, we do have, I mean, it's a great little island for tourism, especially for foreign tourism, because people like the things that our island has to offer, mm-hmm. which is just natural beauty, and we're in the inland sea, in the middle of it. So you can go up on the hiking courses, which are very well maintained, and you can see just amazing views of the inland sea. Um, It's a great place to relax. We have a nice beach. So we do get uh, quite a few international tourists in the summertime because of the beach, mainly. Mm -hmm. And people who need a break from doing the temples and all of that because they're they're, uh, tourists from abroad. And then we also get uh, people who live in Japan, especially the uh, Kansai area, they know about uh, our international villa, which we have here. And that's for foreigners, especially, to uh, see the traditional Japanese lifestyle. It was built in the bubble era, Mm -hmm. and it's only 3,500 yen per person per night, and it's a gorgeous building, really nice facilities. So, yeah. I'm taking notes now. 3,500 yen for a night? Maybe the wife and kids and I will have to take a visit. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then kids up to seven are are 1,000 yen. So. Woohoo! Great. Yeah, yeah. Save the money there, yeah, too. Yeah. Wow. So we do have some things going for us. It's just a matter of uh, how much energy do the people have to keep things going. And uh, the Kasoka City uh, really hasn't been much of a help to us. So they've um, <laughs> kind of forgotten the islands. So you think then that after the school dries up, maybe a lot of people, I mean, there might be a few people, a few families anyway with small kids. They're, they're going to have to move away probably, right? Is that the the upshot? I don't think they would do that. Um, I think the government in Japan has a responsibility to provide education. So and I do know that there was another island that reached critical status and they only had two students in the school and they actually kept the school open along with a staff of eight people full time in order to keep the school going for those two students. Now, eventually, the family did move off the island. And I think that probably, I mean, I have no idea why, but you do get into problems such as socialization and the kids not having friends and stuff like that. So there are multiple problems, even if they do keep the school open. Mm-hmm. But we do um, we do have a couple small kids. Um, some people have 
moved back actually. And so we'll just see what happens with that. I'm not sure, you know, the other option is to put them on a ferry to the next island over where the school still is going because they have a, a higher population. Okay. Still, it sounds kind of, mm, I mean, it's sad. It's sad to see. It's happening here where I live as well. I mean, we've gone from three uh, homerooms per grade to two. And then when my son comes of age, there's going to be one. Um, imagine that being in this huge empty school where on every floor there's only one classroom where there used to be three. Yeah. Oh, uh. yeah, absolutely. How many people live in your village? Um, it's technically not a village. Uh, we're called a town, although it should be a village because I think there's like a general rule that if, if there's less than 10,000, it should be a village. It's not official or anything. But I came here in uh, <clears throat> when I moved here from Tokyo. <clears throat> in two, excuse me, I've got a bit of a throat thing going on as well. When I came here in 2001, the population was over 13,000, and we're just about to hit uh, 6,000, I think, at the next census. I think we're just above wow. seven currently. Yeah, wow, it's not yeah. looking good. Mm-hmm. No. And, of course, all of Japan is like this. So, really, we're living in these microcosms of the, you know, the problems to come for Japan in general. Just, I mean, what are they going to do with all these communities that are dying like this, and who's going to maintain the buildings, and... Mm-hmm. Who's going to, you know, because, yeah, I mean, it's it's mind-boggling to think of what lies ahead. There was the great merger scheme about a decade ago where they started taking all these small towns and villages and then mm-hmm. merging them together <clears throat> to form bigger cities, which I think they were hoping would address the problem. But I think it's going to have to happen again, over and over again, actually. Is Yeah. Which is which is sad because it becomes more of a totalitarian type system where you've got this vertical integration where all the power is held in these big, huge cities. But I don't know. Uh, kind of like the feudal lords. <laughs> yeah. Kind of we'll a lot like that. We'll be making trips to Tokyo with <laughs> right. our mayors will every year, every two years. Wow. Ugh. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, this isn't something that I've, I've talked about on my show yet. So and maybe... I'm not sure if it's a if it's a topic that you've discussed, but what's it like to be a woman in Japan, specifically a Western woman? I used to have a friend who would say that sometimes she'd go out and get groped and stuff like that. But um, <laughs> go out and get groped, I like that. Is this something you can speak to? Is there any? Have you noticed anything being a, a female in Japan? Um, of course, there are lots of issues being female in Japan, just as there are lots of issues being female almost anywhere. Sure. Um, so, and I have to admit that I was also the subject of, um, I can't say it was groping because he didn't touch me, but um, <laughs> I have been, yes, the, hmm, Oogled, the victim of, uh, I, I can't say this <laughs> Okay, on, just dirty on business. radio. But anyway, yeah, I just looked over, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and um, it was a quiet train, not many people around. And so I was very offended by what this man was doing to himself while watching me. Oh, goodness. One of those. And I had only been in Japan six uh, months, mind you. And I was actually on my way to uh, a job interview for the university I ended up teaching at. (laughs) And I was so upset. And I got up and I started yelling at him in English. And everyone around looked at me, but of course, no one did anything. And I'm sure one reason is because, you know, no one else can speak English either. So they're like, okay, what in the world is this woman going on about? 
Mayhem. <laughs> yeah, so the, the guy got up then, and he uh, went to uh, the next train carriage down, actually probably a few down. Well, it happened to be right before the stop I was getting off at, so I got off at that stop, and so did he, thinking that he was going to escape, right? He didn't realize I was getting off there. Mm -hmm. So I went over, and I, I, you know, you take the bridge over the track to get to the exit, and uh, I told the station master, well, I can't say I told him, I made the motions of what the guy was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and so he came out, and then I could see the guy. I, he... He had gone up across the bridge as well, but then he must have seen me down there talking to the station master. So he was walking, pacing back and forth on the bridge, wondering what to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that time, it was, I mean, everyone knew that these perverts were out there. And there were, even then, there were signs that, you know, said, beware of perverts. But the, the fact that the guy didn't do anything is what really kind of pissed me off. So... At any rate, wouldn't you know, another train comes on that same track. And the guy just got on it and disappeared. Wow. So he just rides trains all day looking for beautiful women to... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So then I was really upset. So I called my mother. I was like, oh, my gosh, Mom, you'll never guess what just happened to me. And I told her and she said, oh, that's nothing. We used to have that all the time in New York. <laughs> She grew up in New York City, so it was just like, oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Perspective. It was nothing. So, um, <laughs> wow. exactly. And I figure, you know, yeah. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so you overcame. Yeah. You, you, you got through it. Wow. I don't know if I could. Yeah. That's pretty visually shocking, I would think. Oh, yeah. And I had been like studying Japanese, you know, I was so innocent, you know, and then I just looked up. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, come to think of it, though, I have seen uh, in public, my wife and I stopped at a rest uh, area and we were walking by a relatively empty area. Uh, and there was one guy in his car um, playing his own fiddle, so to speak. So I've seen something like that as well. I don't know if it was directed at me or my wife, but I just happened to that's interesting. Yeah. People, yeah. What, what, <laughs> why, why that happens, I'll never. But apparently, it's not not specific to Japan. It's it happens in uh, back back in the day, back in New York as well. Apparently, yeah, I'm sure all these things happen all the time. But the thing is, is that you know, it's it's the awareness that we're finally getting for this kind of stuff. And of course, Japan has gone ahead and gotten women only train cars. And while that, you know, is addressing the um, you know the 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 oh, what do you say the um the core issue of like the cause. Keeping, yeah the symptom keeping men away from women on the trains yeah yeah not the cause for rather sure rather than not the cause but on the other hand is the cause that easy to to you know remedy either um so i think at least it's a start and at least then when a woman goes into a woman on the train she doesn't have to worry about anything and, yeah. uh, but I've never been uh, groped, and I think that's probably because we're, you know, on country trains all the time, and uh, you know, you're never really in that close proximity of anyone. So, well, that's good. Stay away from the the big crowded trains. Apparently, um, I, I can't even imagine. I, yeah, it's I feel uncomfortable on trains, even as a man, though, getting you know pressed into like the Yamanote, you know, on a on the last train of the day. It's uh, 
I just, ugh, I can't, I can't live in the city. I'm, my body rejects yeah. the city. Uh, truly, I have only been on a, a packed train a few times, and oh my gosh, it's shocking how packed in you are. I mean, every part of your body is getting pressed by someone or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah, very uncomfortable. Imagine doing that on a day-to-day basis. I just, uh, who could who could do that? 12 million people, apparently. Um, let's talk about... Uh, Let's talk about your books. Apparently, uh, you got a book on the horizon about etiquette. I went ahead and pre-ordered a version of it. I don't, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. Can you can you talk a little bit about that, even though it's technically not out yet? <laughs> sure. Um, it will be out in May of 2018. Yeah. And uh, it'll be published by Stonebridge Press in uh, California, and they publish a lot of books on Japan. And Asia, but mostly Japan, I believe. And it's called Amy's Guide to Best Behavior in Japan. And the best thing about the book is that it's all done through cats. <laughs> we found this really this uh, really great artist who draws really cute cats. She's Japanese. Mm-hmm. And um, I just wanted to kind of get away from the 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 foreigner in Japanese and, you know, all these other kind of stereotypes. Sure. Um, I think we all have pretty atrocious behavior, even the Japanese at times. So it's nice to just kind of have an even level playing field. And we're doing that through cats. And so the cats are teaching the proper (laughs) manners. It's very Japanese too, right? Japanese people love cats. There's the cat island. There's uh, I am a cat. Waga haiwa neko de auto. It's a, it's, you know, a standing thing yeah. in Japan. That's great. And everyone loves cats. So, yeah. Well, most people, anyway, according to the internet. <laughs> it's yeah, it's cats are pretty big. Uh, I know a few people who could who could use better manners in Japan, so maybe I'll pick up a few more copies and start spreading those around. <laughs> well, it's been a really interesting book to write because it started off with me just wanting to um, tell people things that they wouldn't get in a regular guidebook. And I deal with a lot of foreign tourists on our little island because I do the international villa check-ins mm-hmm. because I'm the only English speaker on the island. So, And then, of course, we run the Moo Bar on the beach. So uh, we get a lot of people who come down and they're like, they're just so happy to see a foreigner that speaks their language and can explain all these questions they've had. <laughs> <laughs> so we do a lot of that, you know, hand-holding and explaining and this and that. And so I've learned uh, a lot of things through that about what it is that confuses foreigners. And, and I guess m- even more than that is I've learned what the Japanese people think on the other end, the receivers of the mm-hmm. tourists. And of course, the Japanese are so polite, they'll never really come out and tell you. And, but I can observe. And uh, so it's like, well, everyone knows they should be on time, especially in Japan. What they don't understand is why they need to be on time. So it's not just that you're like inconveniencing someone for five minutes or something. It's it's more that in Japan there are always things going on in the background that you don't know about. Maybe people are, you know, planning to meet you at the station to see you off. Or maybe someone's gonna, you know, buy you a gift and wants to give it to you. Or maybe someone's going to buy your ticket and then you've changed your train time, Um, you know, and it's going to be a little later. Or like in the case on the island, what had happened is 
we had two people from the villa who came down to eat at the only restaurant on the island. And so they were going to meet at, let's say, six. And the girl was late by, you know, 10 minutes. And that threw the whole restaurant into a tizzy. They're like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? Do You know, we can't start making any food until she comes. I'm like, well, yes, you can. That's her responsibility. She's late. You know, you can go ahead and start making his food. Oh, no, we can't. Because in Japan, everyone has to be present before you start anything, right? Sure, yeah. So these are the things. And so then I ended up. Um, having to go up to the villa to look for her because then people started saying, well, maybe she fell asleep, you know? <laughs> sure. And isn't going to come or this or that. And I ended up going up to the villa and then she wasn't there. I came back down. By now it's a half hour past when she was supposed to be there. And no. then, and she was already there and she's like, oh, well, you know, when, when I was walking down, someone invited me in for a beer, as the islanders tend to do because they're so nice. So you could understand her point of view because why would you, you know, turn down a beer, first of all, but also with the, <laughs> the, the local culture and a, a chance to, you know, spend some time with the local people. But, you know, in the meantime, she had set off this entire chain of events, you know, that, okay, and it all came back on me to, you know, find sure. her, what's happening and all this. In, you know, in the States, people have been like, oh, you don't show up. That's your problem, right? Right. You know, we'll wait five minutes, and then if you're not there, we just go on. So there are all kinds of little things like that that if people realized, then it would make it easier for both sides because no one really wants to inconvenience others. They just don't think that they're actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the default outside of Japan in the West would be nobody's going to notice or care if I'm late anyway. You know, what? So the, the, right. You, yeah, it's a different mindset for sure. Uh, what's it like running a bar? Uh, I mean, you've been doing that for how many years now? A, de a decade or so? Yeah, um, 13 years, I think. And so and you're taking uh, customers that are both Japanese and foreign tourists. And what's that like? I and mean, mixing you... them together into a volatile <laughs> cocktail. <laughs> Is it ever volatile? I mean, what's it? No, are there any juicy not at stories? All. Not, not too many. If there are any juicy stories, it's on the Japanese side because um, eighty, well, ninety percent of our customers are Japanese. Okay. Um, but there are times when we have ninety percent foreigners, and that's on the shoulder seasons of the summer because the Japanese go to the beach in the summer, but not before the summer and not after the summer. Yet the foreigners are still coming then. So there mm. are times when the balance is, you know, uh, far the other way. But for the most part, our customer base is Japanese. And the Japanese, of course, when they get drunk, they do some funny things. <laughs> we've had, you know, people, well, one guy dancing around naked. Um, we've had you know, people fall off their chairs and, you know, just sleep on the, well, the, the bar floor is the sand, so it's not so bad. Oh, yeah, that's not bad at all. Um, but we, when we put up hammocks because of that, because people kept falling off their stools. <laughs> <laughs> so we thought, okay, we're going to put up hammocks, and that way when people get too drunk, they can just go and lie down, down the hammock. and then, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really nice, because there have been times, yeah, where you're at the bar and you feel like you've had one too many, you're like, I'd just like to take a 20-minute snoozer, you know? Hammocks. Bam. There you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Japanese are actually quite famous for that. And at the other restaurant um, down the beach, they, when people drink too much there, they just put them in one of the tatami mat rooms in the back. And that's kind of a par for the course type of thing, you know. They got the snooze room, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, you just go sleep it off. And the Japanese are great because they will get up and start drinking again. They don't pass out cold, you know, never. (laughs) They come back in an hour and they just start drinking again as if nothing happened. (laughs) I think that's maybe the nomikai culture. Like you can't leave until everybody, you know, does an ipponjime or some kind of clap at the end or whatever, a bonsai maybe. And so if you need to go take like a nap, you're still obligated to get back up and join the party when it finishes properly. That's it. (laughs) But we have lovely customers, you know, overall, and everyone's super polite. Um, And we have nice uh, foreign tourists as well. I mean, this is not a place where you're ever going to see any fights or, you know, any any kind of the, the culture that often the foreigners get blamed for. Do they come to you seeking wisdom? Do you feel like you're maybe playing the role of not only a, bar- a bartender, but also a psychologist at times? Is there any of that? Not at all. And I did bartend for quite a few years in the States mm-hmm. and uh, when I was living in ski towns and stuff. And there's definitely that role is you know, is part of it. But in Japan, I don't think people uh, have those heart-to-hearts with the bartender, or not mm-hmm. a foreign bartender anyway. I, I don't know, or maybe I'm wrong. Now, people sit down and we'll talk about life. And that's a lot of fun. But in general, I've never had anyone just, you know, lay out their problems and right. you know, or be, oh, I'm so depressed or crying in their beer or anything like that. But we're an island and people come to have fun. Right. And people often, they'll come on their private boats. They'll, you know, some come on jet skis, some come on the ferry, uh, some come on sailboats. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a different uh, a different crowd, I think, than your average bar crowd. A lot of families come. And a lot of fun people. It sounds awesome. I, you know, I'm thinking that my family might need to take a vacation there now. We definitely need a vacation. Oh, it'd be great to have you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's so many islands over there. I didn't realize. I mean, you write articles about uh, jumping on your sailboat and then going out and and hunting for goats on different islands and whatnot. (laughs) Islands that, you know, people have never even been on. What, What is that like? It is so much fun. The Inland Sea just has so much to offer. And every island has its own unique culture. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize. And that's why I've been writing about uh, the Inland Sea for years now and and the different islands and uh, what they have. And um, the odd thing for us to, uh, the difficult thing for us to understand is that you can have a small group of islands like Shiraishi Island is a part of a group of uh, six islands called the Kasaoka Islands. Yet the people on this island have no idea what's happening on the next island over. And that's actually quite typical. And I think it must be because these islands have been inhabited for, you know, a thousand years or so. And it was just hard to get to another island. And it's it's kind of like being over the mountain, isn't it, on the other side? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, well... That's a different village, and you know we're our village, and so I think they've just always been insular. And then you add to that the concept in Japan of murahachibu, mm-hmm. which is you know the village mentality, and you know it's even more pronounced, I think, in places that are truly isolated, whether it be in a mountain or in the sea. So it takes quite a bit of effort to get out here, even in modern day Japan, if not more in some ways, because people don't want to be bothered. It'll, you know, it's a whole day trip, really, to come out here and then go back. It's not that far. Uh, but nonetheless, you have to go and you have to wait for a ferry, get on the ferry, um, 40 minutes, 
you know, you get here and then you have to wait for a ferry going back and you know, doing whatever you're going to do here. So it's, you know, for most Japanese people, it's seen as an inconvenience. So people don't want to live in an inconvenient place and they might want to visit an inconvenient place, but it would only be, you know, at, you know most people were still going to go to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> Disneyland is so huge here. I feel like the only way to revitalize my town would be if we built another Disneyland up in the mountains, the Mountain Disneyland Resort. Oh, but they've already been through that in the bubble era. Don't, True. You, surely you've seen all the the big Ferris wheels on top of mountains, and yeah, we you know we we've got a bubble era theme park here. It's in it, it disrepair now. Do you but, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah. They are, aren't they, in disrepair? Mm. Yeah. Interesting concept, though. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about a book of yours that I haven't read, Japan, Funny Side Up. That's still available in, in the ebook format, right? It is. And what I tend to do is uh, once my book goes out of print, then I put it up on Amazon as an ebook because it's mm -hmm. easy. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the way most people read books nowadays anyway. Yeah. A lot of people do. And it's nice to have the combination. I think people hopefully are over that. A uh, time when people are like, oh, I prefer a real book. It's like, well, you can still read real books, you know. Mm -hmm. But especially if you're living abroad, it's so handy to be able to have get an ebook, right? Because you don't have to wait for it to be shipped or pay the shipping costs. Yeah. So Japan Funny Side Up is uh, edited version of the previous guidebook to Japan, what the other guidebooks won't tell you, and uh, it remains a very, very popular book by. Uh, tourists coming to Japan after they get here. Um, a lot of people buy it before they come, but they don't really get it. And then after they've been here, then they, they send me emails. They're like, oh my God, it's so right on. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like it was written um, a lot in my early uh, days in Japan. And um, they're mostly my uh, columns that I wrote before. And they're a bit dated now, actually. But um, it's still a lot of it is so relevant. And sometimes I look back on those and I, I, I mean, because now I've been here so long, I can't even think. I can't begin to think in that kind of uh, mind frame as you do when you first come here. So I think that perhaps it's that once people do come, then they feel like they're going through the same kind of experiences as I did. Mm -hmm. And maybe those are universal experiences. Uh, yeah, I've, I've noticed that people who are in their first, first few years here tend to have similar reactions um, and you're you're coming up on 20. Uh, next year will be my 18th year here. I feel like I go through phases. Uh, you know, your initial five years, and you got your 10-year mark, then you're 15, and um, your mindset and your outlook about Japan changes over time. Where do you feel you're at now, or how do you feel that you've changed over the years? Well, I think that the reason, one reason your ideas of Japan change over time is because you're starting to learn and understand Japan. It takes a, a long time to get to the point where you can understand why things are the way they are. And um, one thing uh, Boy Lafayette Dement told me once is that the, the key to understanding the Japanese is to know that they are predictable. And he's quite right. Um, so there's, there's this very prescribed behavior here, which gets back to manners. And once you know what uh, is being expected of them, then you'll be able to almost predict, you know, how they're going to act. So, like, if you go in and you ask directions, what's going to happen? 
well, someone's going to come out and they're going to walk you to the place you're trying to get to because this is prescribed behavior. This is the polite way. You don't say, oh, go out here, take a right, and it's the, you know, till you get to the first traffic light, take a left, and it'll be the first building on your right, can't miss it. They'll right. never say that. Um, they'll just show you. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> in Tokyo. I, I don't know. I have, I've never asked for directions in Tokyo, but... It might be different mm -hmm. in the big cities, but in the countryside, for sure, out here, yeah, someone you're gonna, you might even get a ride. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, a ride. And I've had like I've gone into convenience stores and just asked for a place that I thought was, you know, must be really close. And they'll they'll go over to the rack, get out an atlas, you know, or a map, <laughs> sure, and they'll thrum through it and they'll you know, they'll work it out for you. And this is what I love about the Japanese is you can, you know approach them with the problem and they'll hang with you till you get it worked out. And sometimes I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. You know, we don't have to work it out. <laughs> it was just a question, <laughs> but they're, they're so good that way. And they want to help people. People so. care here. They... That's, that's for sure. They, yeah. uh, even strangers, they really care about helping people out. It's, I've noticed that for sure. And once you get into that yourself, you start feeling really good about uh, being, nice, kind, helping, having manners. These are all the things that, you know, make you feel good. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a, I think when it gets to manners, it's not just a Japanese thing. It's an Asian thing. Mm. Um, everyone has very good manners. The Asian countries, or I should say the uh, South Asian countries, they're very safe. They're very, you know, easy to travel around because people are willing to help. And like in Thailand, um, it's manners are one of the Thai arts. Hmm. So there are actually contests on who can sit, you know, the, the most prettily and, you know, with everything like looking really nice. And it sounds almost Japanese. Well, <laughs> do they have contests though? I mean, this is I like, don't think so. Wow. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They've taken so, it to another level. <laughs> It does. And it's like, wow, it's kind of admirable in a way because people are, you know, their ideals are very high and they're trying to reach the highest, you know, form and manners in it. So sure. it applies to everyone. It's not just the, you know, the king and queen who have to do this or um, it's everyone. So I think that's kind of nice. It It makes it easier to live among people who aren't always getting angry or having road rage or flipping you the finger or or taking a gun out or I mean, that's just stuff that you know will never happen here right and it it when i go back to america i feel like a little bit in shock actually every time i go back about how uh, maybe i'm just getting old but i feel like there's just a, a, a sort of common lack of respect for other people i don't know maybe I, mm -hmm. maybe i'm just getting old and people <laughs> are so used to it though that they don't expect you know right anything more so yeah yeah do, uh, do you spend a lot of time outside of Japan? I mean, do you go back to uh, your hometown or anywhere else in the United States occasionally? I do. I go back once a year for a month. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually I spend it skiing with my family out west. Wow. Or, One month skiing. That yeah. sounds like paradise, though. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. I just love skiing. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the future a little bit. You've been here 20 years. You've accomplished a lot. And I'm not just talking about all the books and articles, but revitalizing local culture and maybe even open up, opening up an international school next. I'm not sure. But where do you <laughs> see your, <laughs> where do you see yourself in the next, you know, five to ten years? What's what's on the horizon for Amy? 
Well, um, being a writer is a lot of fun, as I said before. Um, and for writers right now in Japan, it's a really good time to be here because of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. And they're using that as an excuse, finally, to start making more information about Japan available in English.、Mm -hmm. And it's mainly for tourists. There's lots of websites and you know, all the signage is being converted and pamphlets and you know, tourist brochures, all those things that we never had before、um, are now. In English, they need all these people to do all this stuff. And so、uh, I did some of it, but I realized I'm not a, a features writer. That's not really what I enjoy doing. What I enjoy is being a columnist.、Um, so I hope to continue doing that.、Mm -hmm. But I think I've also decided that I would like to do my own thing. And so at the top of the year of 2018, I'm starting a site called Books on Asia. And books on Asia. It is, it's a site where we will introduce books on Japan and the rest of Asia, but mostly Japan at the beginning, and keep people updated on what new books are out, what, you know, what are the classics you might want to read that are super relevant right now. It'll be hooked to current events so that when, you know, now North Korea is in the news, so we'll give you some really good books to read about North Korea. Um, that might give you a good perspective,、um, or even a humorous perspective for that matter. There are some, you know, there's a book written by.、Um, did you hear that? Is that your ferry coming in? It is. <laughs> And are you, are you about ready to head out? <laughs> no, no, no. I just wanted to wait till that was over so that I、oh, could、okay. start again in case. That's so authentic. We have to keep that in there. <laughs> that's the ferry coming、oh, okay. into your island. That's fine then. <laughs> And you're going to be taking that out. Is that right? Yeah, at 11 o'clock. Yeah. Okay, so we're good on time. So,、um, but there's a book written by、um, a, a Japanese guy who's a chef, who was a chef for,、um, for the North Korean leader at the time. Wow. So,、um, there are, yeah, we'll just introduce all the latest books,、um, classic books, also、um, rare books, and we'll have book reviews, and we'll have a podcast that we'll be in, interviewing the literati. Um, just your big authors and、uh, trying to get behind the scenes look at who these people are,、uh, how they function, and how they work、um, on their, you know, their books and stuff, but mostly about their lives and what they think is important. We have consulate generals who are going to talk about what they read in their free time,、um, so VIPs and such. And it's supposed to be Uh, my aim is to have a site where everything is all in one place because I do a lot of research for my articles and I know it can be very hard to find good books on Japan and other parts of Asia. There's tons of stuff out there, but the market now is just so、uh, saturated with books of all genres and all levels of quality. So it's really hard to get through all that. And you can, you can do it on your own,、um, but it takes a lot of time. And so, my hope is to、uh, have the Books on Asia site be the go to site for、uh, anyone who's looking for more information on Asia. That is awesome. And when, when is this、uh, coming into production? When can we see this? Well, my website、uh, designer is working on it right now. So, I am going for a January 2018 launch. Okay. And, nice.、Um, yeah. For the podcast and as well. We'll cover、uh, the, 
Well, that's a good question because um, <laughs> I'm still working on the podcast and of course the technical difficulties are just killing me. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll try to get the, the first one up at the launch. Uh, whether that actually happens <laughs> remains to be seen. But um, we're going to cover all genres also. And if anyone thinks that they know a good book or an author who should be featured, then please let me know because uh, that's part of what we're doing. I'm hoping to have a week that will focus on uh, Timor-Leste and I'm hoping to interview some authors there on the ground. And um, yeah, so we'll see. It's But nothing's uh, out of reach for us. We're going to go for all of Asia and with a concentration on Japan. Nice. That is awesome. And what about your friend, Alex Kerr? You just had him out for a pilgrimage, right? Are you going to put him on the podcast, interview him? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, actually, <laughs> we did do a podcast uh, episode. So that'll nice. be up there, too. Yeah. Great. Yeah. He's an amazing person to listen to. Absolutely mesmerizing. So he's a very good speaker. Mm. So I think people will enjoy that. Books. I mean, if if there are anything to, to judge by, oh, my gosh. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to listen to it. He's, he's one of my favorites for sure. That's good. awesome. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're headed out on a ferry. Um, I really am thankful for you for coming on and doing this. Um, I wish you nothing but success, and I can't wait to read your upcoming book and check out the new site. So I'll make sure to put all that stuff in the show notes for you. Is there anything you'd like to add at the end? Maybe since you wrote a book about etiquette recently, could you give maybe (laughs) people who are coming to Japan some advice about maybe one of the most important things that they can have in their toolkit when coming to Japan in terms of etiquette? Okay, um, can, if you can wait a moment, I'm going to bring something up on my computer. Sure. I actually have, as uh, in the book, we have uh, at the beginning 10 things you should always do and 10 things you should never do. Awesome. This is way better okay. than one. Yeah, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, do you want the 10 things you should never do or the 10 things you should always do? Okay. Uh, hmm. I'm more of a positive go get 'em kind of guy. So let's let's do the ten <laughs> things you should always do when you visit Japan. Okay. Ten things you should always do. Show hesitancy. Hmm. So rather than just going ahead, you know, and doing things, you really should wait, uh, pause, listen, and observe what other people are doing first. That's a good one. Um, two is learning to use both hands when handing items to others uh, or when yeah, drinking yeah. from a cup of tea, pouring beer from a bottle into a glass or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, speak slowly and succinctly and enunciate. Something I need to work on. <laughs> well, as English <laughs> teachers, you know, this is something that you end up learning, you know, along the way anyway. Sure. But four is be patient, because Japanese people tend to take a lot of time to consider questions before answering them. Definitely. Um, Number five is be humble and be modest, talk less, listen more. Hmm. Number six is be on time. (laughs) Or five minutes early. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And seven is when in doubt, take the blame. Because it shows that you're concerned for the other person, even if it's not your fault. 
That's good marital advice too, I think. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And then um, never leave your jacket just like the way you take it off. Like if you're on a chair and leave it all crumpled up, but to take it and fold it mm. and put it next to you. Um, nine, shake out excess water from your umbrella before going into a taxi. Definitely. And I had a taxi driver teach me that <laughs> firsthand. <laughs> that was kind of embarrassing, but I'm glad he did. And then 10 is when in doubt, ask permission, because this shows you're not taking things for granted or making assumptions. Now, just for the fun of it, I'm going to give you the uh, 10 things you should never do in Japan. Yes, I was hoping we could get, case, yeah, all right, awesome. Yeah, just in case you'd rather use that or if you want to use both, that's I, fine too. If I can use them so, both, I would love to, but I, I wasn't sure. Oh, you okay. offered one, that's so fine. I was like, I know that, I'll, take, <laughs> I'll take both for sure. I put you on the spot. <laughs> but tourists uh, tend to want, to want to know what not to do. Yeah, for so, sure. So, yeah. um, and you know, some of these things are, you know, people are going to be, ah, you know, but these are things, again, it's it's my guide, Amy's guide. <laughs> this is my opinion, right? Um, one is you should never point at something using a single finger. That's huge, actually. Not even your index finger. Yeah, that is huge. Right? Yeah. yeah you use your whole hand. And it, it makes you instantly elegant. So it's a it's a great thing. Yeah. Uh, number two, when with Japanese people, never make the first move. Mm. So, you know, sitting down at a table, um, uh, starting to, you know, drink a glass of beer, all that kind of stuff. There's actually protocol involved in all of it. Um, when taking photos, you know, where the guest is supposed to stand in the photo, things like that. So it's best, again, to hesitate and allow the Japanese to nudge you in the right direction, which they will do. Definitely. They're predictable. <laughs> <laughs> number three, never show anger. Mm. And you just, you never see Japanese people get physically angry. So, uh, Except on TV. Basically, <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. But people who cannot control their emotions, right, are considered immature, right, as well as very rude. Yeah. So you can get angry, but just don't show it and don't raise your voice. And that's just good advice I, I in like, life, I think. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And then four, in public, uh, never blow your nose, bite your fingernails, or chew gum while talking. Yeah, or shake your leg, right? That's another one. Mixed in with that group, I would I'd put that in there, yeah. the be Shake your leg? <laughs> yeah, I used to be a drummer, so my legs are always kind of like fidgeting. Oh, right. <laughs> I think you call it beanbow right. user or something like that. Like you're going to go pour all the coins going to shake out of your pockets. But it's a, you know, that also is included in that bundle of behavior <laughs> that you're not supposed to do. And I do. Yeah, like yeah. All that, the constant fidgeting. Yeah, they don't right? like that either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I'll include that. <laughs> I'll, put, I'll put an edit in for that. You gotta yeah, put Bimbo. I, I think I'm getting this right. Bimbo usury. I forget what it's called exactly, but yeah, I, I get uh, that yeah. constantly. People are like, "Stop fidgeting!" And I'm, "Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry, sorry." <laughs> <laughs> well, you see the, you see teachers reprimand students in like first grade, mm -hmm. you know, because in kindergarten kids are allowed to do whatever they want. They get into first grade, and oh my gosh, suddenly it's like you know, sit up straight, you know, put your hands on your lap. Right. Da, 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 da. It's like whoa. Yeah. But, yeah, they come out very polite. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it works. Yeah. Okay. Number five, uh, never joke or use sarcasm. 
yeah, sarcasm is not understandable here, not usable here. That's one thing that coming from the States, a particularly sarcastic generation of the States that I've had a lot of difficulty with over the years. And it's wreaked havoc on my marriage at times where I'm just like, no, honey, I'm sorry. Sarcasm means the exact opposite of what I'm saying, but <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah. And not only that, it's it's not just that the Japanese people won't get it, but they may misinterpret it, mm-hmm, like you said, mm-hmm. and take it literally. And then you're in real trouble because they'll never tell you. They'll just be like later on, they might tell someone, oh, my gosh, you know, so-and-so said, you know, I'm like, oh, no. And then yeah. even when they do get it, get it, when you explain, oh, this is sarcasm. I mean, there's a word for it in Japanese, but nobody uses it, right? They, they'll think that it's trivializing the conversation. Like, why would you even be... Right. doing that you're just why would you even say that exactly mm-hmm. right exactly yeah so avoid it just avoid it's it. in life i think it's when i go back to the states that's one of the things that really bothers me is is the level of sarcasm i feel like it's been dialed up to 100 and maybe that's because i yeah. deal with it dialed down to zero here in japan i i can't probably yeah 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 that's a good one okay number six uh never brag just don't do it mm. <laughs> Yeah, nobody does that here, for the most part. I, you don't. No, drawing attention to yourself is considered bad manners. Yeah. Um, number seven, never scarf down your food. Yeah, I need to work on that as well. <laughs> That's a big one. This is a big difference between you know Japan and at least the states. Anyway, I don't know about other cultures, but you know, in the states, you sit down with a big plate, mm-hmm. right, all to yourself. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of hoe into it. And there's the big joke about, you know, how everything gets silent for the, you know, <laughs> once the food is served. Right. But in Japan, you, you well, first of all, you're going to hesitate before you even start, probably. Right. If, if you're, you know, eating at someone's house. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then and then you eat a little bit and then you put the chopsticks down on the chopsticks rest, mind you. And you talk a bit or you have a little bit of a drink and then you go back to eating and then you stop. It's much more deliberate and very slow uh, eating. And uh, my Japanese friends, I notice, don't really eat very much. And I imagine that's probably part of it is because the system has time to catch up. <laughs> yeah, at a drinking party, I've on numerous occasions, there have been uh, you have to get up and serve the people in your group and then you serve the elders, right? So <clears throat> I've been to... Mm-hmm. Parties where I didn't even get a bite until maybe like an hour in. You're, it's like you know, you're working. Oh, yeah. You want to get out. You want to socialize. You gotta right. name awashi. You gotta talk to people and and um, show your respect, mm-hmm. of course, as well. So yeah, definitely. I guess the only time that you can really just wolf down food in Japan is is like one of those greasy spoon ramen stations. Um, uh, excuse oh, me. Oh yeah, ramen. Like the tachigui. <laughs> Notable exception. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like the standing, the standing ramen shop where you go in yeah. at a station, you stand up, tachigui, and you eat, and you just wolf it down in between, like while you're waiting for the train or something like that. That's like the only occasion yeah. where you can wolf down food, I think, in Japan. Or maybe if you really want to wolf down food and you're not in an appropriate place, you could just like look at your watch every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> so people think, oh my gosh, she's in a hurry. <laughs> He's working. As long as you're working, it's it's yeah, forgiven. Yeah. So then number eight is never get into the bath without washing off first. Mm, key point. And that's really basic, but apparently people still need to be told. They do. Yeah. And nine is uh, uh, <laughs> something I think a lot of us have made this mistake before we came here. But um, and it applies more so to people who live here, but also people who are staying in guest houses and such. 
but never hang your underwear outside to dry where everyone can see it. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Because the underwear thieves will get it, right? I mean, so that's just common sense. <laughs> well, I think that's kind of must be one of their revenge things. I'm going to teach them to never hang their underwear outside again. <laughs> that is awesome. That is so good. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm seriously, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a few copies. I'm going to hand them out. I know a couple foreigners who could use a copy of that book for sure. <laughs> I'll give you a number 10 though. And actually this isn't, um, my editor's already told me I have to take this out. <laughs> seriously? Cause I, yeah, because I wanted to end on a, a kind of a, a fun note, mm-hmm. but he's really more into really practical stuff. Okay. So number 10 is never say I'm sorry for a death unless you've done the killing yourself. <laughs> I, I get it. I understand why he wants it taken out. But it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, that's my humor getting in there. It's always today. So he said, let's go for something more practical. Yeah, because we say sorry. But it's know? true, though, because... Yeah, and that's the one thing that the Japanese think is so funny. And it doesn't it's not just like, oh, someone died because in a, you know, that kind of situation, you you know, you're not going to use uh and it's not not really what I'm talking about. It's more like, you know, you start talking to a Japanese person, maybe you're a tourist, and you say, "So what do your parents do?" And you know, say, "Well, my father died when I was 4, so my mother." And then, you know, we're going to say, "Oh, I'm sorry." Right. Right. It's programmed so it's, in, yeah. It applies to many different situations, you know. And uh, so, uh, but that when you hear a lot from the Japanese, they're like, oh my gosh, I was so surprised when they said, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> Why are you say, It's okay. It's you not your involved. fault. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is the set phrase, right? Like, go shusho sama deshita and yeah. go kinodoku yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, nobody ever apologizes. Right. So that would sound really strange. Yeah. And I, I think I even went for, rather than using those phrases, because they're quite formal. Yeah, for sure. And difficult to remember. So I just uh, suggested to say, tai hendes ne. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, that's the go-to. That's a great go-to for almost anything. So anyway, those are the top 10 things you should never do in Japan. It's just good advice for life, most of those. I feel like those are not only, especially in Japan, but I mean, I feel like, People could benefit from those just in general. So that's definitely good advice. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I love this country. It really, it, we, I think everyone who comes here, when they leave, they, they take a few manners, uh, Japanese manners home with them. And that's what I hope that by people reading this book, that uh, they'll find some things, some real gems in that say, hey, you know, why don't we do this back at home? And well, why can't I just do it anyway? The, the, you know, <clears throat> Taking off your shoes before you going in, go into the house. I think I wish people in the states would do that as well because wow, yeah, just they do carpets in the U.S. My goodness, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's so much easier for cleaning too. You don't have to clean all the time if you're not bringing all that dirt in. Right. My parents started doing it after they visited me in Japan, so I know that these are mm-hmm. things that you can pick up and and uh, export back to the United States. So definitely good stuff. I think anyone who's ever lived in japan once they move back home takes off their shoes before they go in that i think so too there may be a few exceptions but those are definitely the weird ones watch out for those people Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) as a matter of fact one you know person said yeah and all my friends uh, get upset that they have to take their shoes off (laughs) (laughs) 
I thought wonderful. And it's more comfortable anyway, you know, yeah. walk around your stocking feet and yeah. Seriously, wearing shoes. That's uh, you're a runner though. Like um I remember reading a book a long time ago called Born to Run where he talks about Oh yeah. What a great book. Yeah, like they were wearing like they cut out the rubber from shoes and turned them into sandals to wear to run like 300 mm-hmm. kilometer races and stuff like that. Are, do you buy into the whole um, like no heel striking, thin shoe movement? I do. I do. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, that book, uh, the um, Ted, Ted, Barefoot Ted McDonald, who uh, was one of the main characters in that book, he uh, started a company. He started a company called um, Luna Sandals, and it's based on that same uh, concept. And the really comfortable sandals uh, that you can wear running. And I love them because now I don't wear them all the time, but um, I certainly could and I'd be fine too. But sometimes if it's cold or something, you want to wear a shoe or depending on the terrain. But I always uh, stick them in my backpack because if it's raining, for example, rather than running in wet shoes and getting blisters, you just put these on and, you know, you're free. And... Uh, they're, they don't have a lot of cushion and other things, but I've been running since I was a, you know, a little kid. I guess we all have. It's just some of us stop. <laughs> um, and I tend to run quite efficiently. So I have no problem running in sandals because my, I don't know, my feet, my body just do the natural thing. Um, whereas if you haven't been a runner all your life, I think they would be a little bit harder to use because... You know, you might not have the technique down. Right. Um, yeah, just like any sport, you know, the difference between starting it young and then starting it as an adult is going to be different. You're not going to have the natural tendencies and you're not going to have maybe uh, the muscles in the certain areas build up um, and stuff. But uh, I absolutely love them and I wear them all the time and I can run long distance in them, no problem. I didn't realize there was a product out. Was it the author of the book that made that? I know there was a character in the book, the guy that he met that was kind of like a Jesus type character. That guy passed away recently. But the author was used to be a Sports Illustrated writer. Is he the guy that's putting out these sandals? No, no. Uh, Barefoot Ted McDonald, he was, um, I'm trying to think of his role in the book. Um, okay, he was a character or a person that appeared in the book. Yeah, he was... Um, he was <laughs> known for his, his strong personality uh, more than anything. He's a great guy, though. Um, I met him up at the uh, the Mount Fuji 100-mile uh, trail race, and uh, he actually ended up uh, writing the foreword to my book, to my Shikoku book, Running the Shikoku Pilgrimage. Wow. And uh, You know everybody. He's, yeah, he's kind of started up his own kind of business, and he's got his own fan club, and yeah, he became really popular because of the book. And he's just a personality, you know, but a super nice guy. I was so surprised after reading the book at how down to earth he was, because he kind of sounded like he might be a bit obnoxious and loud and this and that, but not at all. As a matter of fact, he lived in Japan for five years huh. before all this, you know, when he was younger. He, uh, I don't know if he came over with Jet or not, but um, yeah, he, he taught English for five years and... Um, uh, uh, Lake Biwa around that area. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The biggest Kyoto. lake in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to reread that book. It was such a good book. I, I read it a long time ago, back when I used to run. I, <laughs> those people that 
stopped running. I don't do so much of that anymore. Having kids takes it out of you. Well, once you have a family, it's hard. That's right. Yeah, you don't have, really have so much of your own free time. And I find it hard to find the time to run as well. But this is the first year that, you know, I've had that problem. I'm, you know, so I'll get back to it shortly here. I do chase them at the park, though. So I, I, I guess I get a little bit oh, running in. Oh, that'll, yeah, <laughs> that'll definitely get you a lot of exercise. <laughs> well, Amy... Thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It was been so much fun. I don't want to keep you. I know you Thanks, have a, a fairy coming. Yeah. So keep in touch. And, and uh, when the uh, when the site is up and everything is, is humming, um, I'll put it in the show notes as well. But then we can, I'll pass that along as well when that's up. And that'll be, that'll be great. I can't wait to listen to the podcast. Okay. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. Well, take care then. All right. Thanks, Jeff.